Hi, and welcome to Serious About Sustainability, the podcast series brought to you by Mitsubishi Electric's Ikadan, air source heat pump. I'm Russell Dean from Ikadan, and you're listening to a series of podcasts all about renewable home heating. We'll be covering a range of topics from the perspective of UK homeowners, self-builders, contractors, house builders, and housing associations. Our show today is called Heat Pumps, Upskill to Ikadan. My guests are George Clark, Architect and Ikadan Ambassador, Will Allenson, Deputy Principal at Harlow College, and Lance Hitchens, People and Training Manager at Mitsubishi Electric. Welcome, everyone. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. So today we're talking about upskilling people. Uh, We're talking about engineering um, resource that we've got out there. There's a massive transition with the low carbon agenda and sustainability. There's big commitments for building regulations post 2025. We're moving away from fossil fuel or gas, ga- gas boilers in, in new build homes. And it's, it's obvious that we'll move to the low carbon technology, which is air source heat pumps. But it obviously sets some challenges in place because we've got, what, 120,000 gas safe qualified uh, installers out there. And um, if you just looked at the MCS stats, uh, micro generation scheme stats, we've probably got a thousand accredited installers. There's there's more installers out there. There's probably up to two thousand, three thousand installing heat pump technology now. But when we look at that that growth through that transition of gas engineers to to low carbon engineers and heat pump engineers. You know, we're, we're, we're training 50,000, 100,000 engineers in, in the not too distant future. So that, that sets some challenges. And um, Lance, I mean, it's probably best to come to you first because you've been spearheading Mitsubishi Electric's uh, training program for a while now. What, what challenges has that set and, and how, have you, how have you adapted to that? Um, well, I think if you look at how we used to do this, you know, we talked pre-COVID, um, we'd be delivering this to maybe 2,000 people a year across all of our products ranges. Um, we've seen a huge upturn in the number of people that want Ikadan training, uh, especially around air source heat pumps, design application, installation, commissioning courses. Um, where we're now in a position where, you know, a couple of months ago we did over 700 within within a calendar month, and we're now we're now hitting four or five thousand people a year um, to train again across the product ranges. But again, the lion's share being on on Ikadan. The, the challenge is it being scalable, you know. Um, Historically, again, it was a PowerPoint presentation in a in a classroom, six to eight hours potentially with a with an in, with an instructor, um, being taught you know theory of how an air source heat pump works. And I mean, I'm not you know from this industry as such as, as being an engineer myself, but when you speak to a lot of engineers, they learn by doing and they learn by practical you know kinesthetic. It's you know playing with it, functioning, taking something off, change you know changing a compressor or whatever, and what we found is, is that, you know, we, we can teach them the, the, the basics through our blended learning programs, but, but bring them in-house to do hands-on facilitated learning, which um, we only launched in March this year, uh, but has already proven uh, to be really, really successful. Excellent. Can I jump in, Lance? Can I ask, of, of all those people you're training, how many of them are existing gas-safe registered engineers, or are they kind of new recruits, if you like, who want to learn a new trade? 
I'd say predominantly they are from plumbing backgrounds. You know, we get a lot of people that, you know, historically, again, used to come through the programs, you know, they were either from a plumbing background or an electrician background, you know, plumbing, don't want to touch electrics, electrics don't want to touch plumbing. Um, but, you know, it is a, a total system uh, that they need to be comfortable with. So we teach them all of those things uh, on the hands-on training as such. Um, they they plumb the unit in, all the, the connections, plumb connections and everything, get, get the water running through the water loop. And then they do all the electrical work. You know, they, they, they electrically wire in the controller, they configure the system, they commission the controller, and then we get them back in the afternoon and basically break it as much as we can and get them to try and understand what's gone wrong and, and fault find diagnostics to help improve that installation procedure. Um, so it's plumbing and electrics. I know it sounds like I'm stating the obvious, but that's, it kind of feels slightly different for the industry because you're right, you would just say you're a plumber and there's the electrician over there. That person does that job and the other person does the other job. Absolutely. And some people still function that way. I think we talk and they say, oh, my electrician is here with me today and he's doing the training as well. He'll do that part and I'm going to do this part. But, you know, not, not everyone has that, that flexibility, really. So very new. Very new. But I think going back to what you were saying about how we and probably most manufacturers did it of bringing people into a classroom and running through PowerPoint presentations. I mean, PowerPoint was seen as, as new age at one time and that was the advanced way of doing it. And then used to be overhead projectors back in my day, mate. Absolutely. Forget about PowerPoint. But I think, I, you know, from my perspective, some of the key things that, that made us make this decision to go online was that, that sheer scalability where, you know, we had uh, and a backlog of engineers wanting to come on the courses and we couldn't facilitate that. Whereas with this LMS platform and these digital tools, that uh, allow us to, to, to reach so many people really quickly. We can train thousands of people um, a year now. I think it's, it's, a good, it's such a good step forward. Um, what kind of feedback have you had from, from that training? And that, that? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, going into this industry with a different type of offering uh, than they're used to, they're, they're used to coming along and getting their, their, uh, their training done via PowerPoint or overhead projectors, depending on how long ago it was. <laughs> um, and and uh, turning them to over to this whole, you know, going to do things digitally and online. Um, there's your login, there's your password, you know, get on. Um, the feedback's been absolutely astounding. I have to say it was way beyond what we were hoping for. Um, we measure that success by asking people, would they recommend this course to someone else to do? Um, and in the year to now, uh, we've achieved about 99% of people say they would recommend our course to someone else to do, which is way beyond what we were expecting. And when you see the amount of feedback they give us, especially the heating guys, you know, heating guys give us a lot more feedback than on our air concourses for some reason, what that is, but they write sometimes war and peace, you know, evaluation feedback, just telling us what they thought of the course, what they enjoyed, what they thought was, you know, really productive for them. And, and it's, it's, it's almost too many really sometimes to go through. And how do you balance the online learning with being hands-on at Mitsubishi and, and you, you talked about people dealing with the kit. How, how are you balancing those two forms of teaching? So the guys, all the guys are out actually yeah, they're doing this today actually in the other room. Um, so we deliver the, the fundamental courses, which is your design application, installation, commissioning, service and fault finding parts one, two and three. On, upon completion of that, you can then register your interest to do the hands-on delivery. So we make sure that everyone's got that fundamental baseline learning before they come in and uh, start touching kit. Um, that was one of our challenges, actually, when we go back to the whole PowerPoint, you know, delivery uh, that we used to do was that some people have seen one before, some people have never seen one before. Oh, my boss has sent me to come and do this course. We need, 
is that an S or C pump? Um, or I've been installing for the last couple of years, but never actually been to, to do my training or whatever. Uh, I've trained by someone else or whatever, you know, wherever it was. Um, so we make sure that everyone that comes in is, is just ready to go in the morning. Uh, you know, they've done their briefing. You know, we don't need to teach them the basics because we've got their learning logs. We know how they've performed in their, in their blended learning. Cool. It's getting the most out of people's time, isn't it? When we have their time here, we want them to have the, the most benefit. But I think historically as well, you might have a firm that has 30 engineers and they've won a contract to install a thousand heat pumps and they send two engineers on the training and, and that engineers have then got the responsibility to pass on what they learned through the PowerPoint to the other 28 engineers. Whereas what we can do is open it up to all 30 engineers and, and maybe there are some key technical people that come on the in-depth training, but we're able to get across so much with that LMS and to reach, reach those. Work. And just touching on that, something's really important is, is, is the amount of time they're going to spend with us worth their time? You know, you take a day away from work from a, from a contractor, that's a day unpaid, you don't get paid sick pay or, you know, leave or anything like that, especially the, the smaller companies. So we have to make that that time with us is effective. Um, hence the blended learning has been so well received, I think, because they can do it from, from home, do it in their own time, do it in their offices, um, and then attend a two hour virtual workshop, which they could potentially take a break and continue working the rest of that day. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's part of the, the good news story. And, and when we talk about sustainability, you know, all those traveled CO2 miles that people aren't doing, um, it has been a massive impact. And I think we were talking before about sheets of paper not being printed. And we, we calculated we haven't printed around 800,000 sheets of paper in the last 18 months, which is, again, a massive impact. Do you get a little bit of resistance, though, about contractors not, want, want, not wanting to take a day off work to come and be retrained in something? Because yeah. you said like it's good, you've got to make it worth their while for them to come in and actually learn that. Do you get a bit of resistance from business thinking, well, is it really worth it? Well, for the first time last year, we launched Reskill Tweakadan, um, which was a program designed at people who had previously been entrained on older systems. You know, we're now sixth iteration of this product, and um, things change uh, if you've been trained five, six years ago on an older version. But you know, what's the what's the uh, the benefit for me to come in and, and be reskilled. So we delivered that as an online program so they could sign up and, and do reskilling programs. And we want to create that continuous learning. Um, so whether or not we get resistance or whether or not we just don't see those people for, for some time, yeah. um, we need to encourage the behavior that they come back to us on a regular basis. I think there's fear as well in the installation resource that's out there is that this is a, you know, it's a transitional move from one technology to other, whether you're the installer, whether you're the house builder, the social housing provider, the homeowner, there's that fear of, well, this is different because, you know, historically applying a gas boiler that was 30 kilowatts, you couldn't really get it wrong because it was such a big heat source on a property that had a heat loss of eight, eight kilowatts. It was always going to heat the property and you wouldn't really notice whether it was inefficient or, or inefficient. And now we're, we're engineering that solution so that if you have got a an eight kilowatt heat loss, you're getting an eight kilowatt system and it's, and it's going to fight its hardest to, to operate. It's most efficient. You've got to get quite a few things right along that process. So there was certainly a lot of fear. Um, and that's what we kind of embraced with the, with the training to get those, get those engineers through that. Absolutely. So Will, on, on the college front, on the education with students and the next generation of engineers coming through, have you started to see people engaging more with sustainability and <laughs> So we certainly have young people asking those questions at um, an interview. When we go out to schools, we do outreach stuff at, at schools. The key thing that young people look for are jobs. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so if they can see a job, and more importantly, if they can see a pathway between where they are and where that job is and how they best get there, we find that most powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have to say, at the moment, we, we're certainly having discussions ac- across the whole of our curriculum mm-hmm. um, in engineering and you know, electrification of vehicles, all of, you know, all of that, including construction, on how we decarbonise. We call it decarbonising our curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's key that it's led from jobs. Um, as I think I was saying earlier, I said, I've, I've been battling with my plumbing department for the last 18 months that they're telling me we need a, a gas centre, um, which I've been completely resistant. As the carbon as carbon reduction lead for the college to get us to net zero by 2050, I've, I've been kind of putting a block on it. But the truth of the matter is the, 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 we've got young apprentices that need to progress onto their level three qualifications. They need to become gas engineers. And so we need that gas centre. Um, what I've said is that if we're going to do that, we're going to absolutely put in sustainable energy systems as well. Um, so we're currently looking at, um, at putting in um, a sustainable, sustainable energy system to include things like air source heat pumps, um, electrical energy, storage systems, PV, all of that type of thing. Um, the challenge, I think, is that cur- the current challenge that we're having is, one, having the employers that engage with us actually wanting to engage with those skills as well, and you touched on it. It's you know, we, we work with a, a lot of plumbers and gas engineers that um, have probably almost got a vested interest because that's where their skill sets are, that's where their business is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's how we kind of uh, um, assist them to shift that. Um, and I, th- I think, you know, with the new housing stock, with retrofit being absolutely massive, um, those opportunities will come up. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in a really good position really to be to be able to communicate that to young people. So um, so the, the, the gas installers in the in, in local to Harlow, would they approach you for well, the next apprentices or have you got any good engineers coming through or Yeah, so, yeah. so, so the, the way it usually works is we, we would normally take young people on straight from school, put them onto a full time program mm-hmm. um, and then look to progress those into jobs. We work very, very closely with um with 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 um, industry across all of our sectors. Mm-hmm. But the the key thing for us is to really progress those into jobs and try and fight that that kind of skills pipeline for um, for people that are entering, entering into the workplace. So to be able to shift, you know, I've, I've, I've kind of accepted we need we need a gas centre. So being able to shift that from from you know kind of a fossil fossil fuel and a traditional um, curriculum to something that's more sustainable will take time. Um, we can't do that on our own. Mm-hmm. We can you know we we recognise we can we can only do that working with employers, working with manufacturers like yourself. To really kind of communicate that out there. Mm-hmm. There's another big piece, which is which is the curriculum change. The other thing that we need to do is to make sure that you know young people that that are going onto our courses, they want some currency at the end of it. They want to they want those certificates. They want to be able to take, take that and have currency. What we need to do is to work with the awarding organisations, with the sector leads, on making sure that this is getting into the curriculum. Mm-hmm. And I know that's something that George has done a, a lot of. We've worked on previously in other areas yeah i mean i know will pretty well because um you know moby my educational charity for home design and innovation we, we launched that first at harlow college i think at that at that level which was amazing you know i was kind of really excited about it but we also knew how difficult it was going to be because in some ways we had a course that was very innovative and you could argue it was beyond where the industry was at and i think the point that will's making is that at the end of the day, when someone goes to a college and they've got a couple of years to learn a course, you know, whether it's a B-Tech course or whatever it might be, they want a job at the end of it. Mm. And one of the issues that we had through 
quite high levels of innovation, but there weren't enough companies out there Absolutely. innovating with home design and innovation Absolutely. to give them jobs. Mm. And it was the thing that we wanted a, a, a large cohort of students to come through. But in a, in a sense, we, we would have failed, if you like, as, a, as an educator by educating them in something that they couldn't get a job for. Chicken and egg. Well, it's, it's part of the transitional phase that I think the entire low carbon or zero carbon economies going through mm-hmm. you know we, we we know what we want to be doing i think Buzz has made a great point that you know he's very reluctantly i suppose back down that you've got to build a gas training center you know for, for gas engineers of course we still need gas engineers we've got 20 odd million houses across britain and you know, a lot of them have still got gas boilers in them and until legislation changes or the mindset of homeowners change or the mindset of landlords change because there's a lot of rented accommodation out there that's got gas boilers in. People are going to replace them with new gas boilers Mm. and they need to be good and they need to be efficient and they need to be safe. Mm. And it's only when there's a bigger seismic shift, I think, with particularly with existing housing stock or if legislation comes in by government to say, do you know what, you all have to get rid of your gas boilers even in an existing building. It's going to take that shift for us to no longer no longer require the number of gas engineers that the industry needs and i think that's why it's a very tricky transition for you can compare it with other industries like the car industry we still need i would say conventional car mechanics to work on the combustion engine because we still have a lot of cars out there that have got combustion engines and even when they're phased out there's still going to be a number of them around for a number of years so i think for as long as we're in that transitional phase and it sounds like a horrible phrase to use we're going to need lots of different skills, mm-hmm. some that are more conventional and some that are very, very innovative. You're absolutely right. Yeah. When you talk about construction, it's quite a traditional industry in some ways when you talk about building construction of housing. You know, you're talking about people laying foundations, you know, digging trenches, laying foundations, predominantly building brick or block walls, you know, getting joiners to come and put roof trusses on and rafters on. And it's you'll still see that with all the big house builders across Britain and they're the big employers, you know, they're huge employers. Um, at the same time, we've got offsite manufacturing happening with housing. It's taken a big shift for the industry to step in to do that with massive risks. Um, and it's worked in some areas and it's not worked in others. Um, you know, I was part of a modular house building company that we thought was going to change the world and it didn't, unfortunately, because it needed a huge amount of capital investment to do that. And I think when you look at the car industry, there's, let's face it, there's, there's just a couple of super big players who are fully electric making it happen. And that's taken a staggering amount of investment to get there. But they're also making a global product. Mm. They can sell that same product in virtually any country across the world. You can't compare housing with cars because, mm. you know, when it comes to construction, you've got different styles of housing different types needed in different regions with different planning authorities, uh, with different levels of density. It's just not a one size fits all at all. And I think that's where the education system is probably going to change across the country. You might have kind of regional differences in terms of delivery of educational programs on, on housing and the technology that's in housing Mm. because of different levels of demand. You're going to have some areas of the country where retrofit is an absolute priority. I agree. And other areas of the country where new build is an absolute priority and retrofits may be not quite as important. For me, all of it's important. But coming back to Will's point, different regions will have a different level of jobs requirement yeah. for that. 
you know, there'll, there'll be certain regions I said, we need more of this type of job for housing. We need more of this sort of technology. I mean, the good thing about an EcoDan air source heat pump is it, it's a fantastic bit of kit that when it's designed properly um, and the system's designed properly, that is a bit like a Tesla car. It should be able to work anywhere on any house, as long as that house meets the requirements of the EcoDan kit. Because mm-hmm. we know, like, I keep banging on all the time about retrofits, and it's quite hard for us to put an EcoDan air source heat pump under some old housing stock because it's not insulated properly or it's too drafty and it's got single glazing. And we know that the system, as brilliant as it is, might not be able to heat the house like a conventional gas boiler would. And I think all of that comes back to education. That's from government policy to housing to forms of construction to the old housing stock to new build and retrofit to regional differences and regional job opportunities. It's it's a tough balance, I think, for the education system to get it, right. It is, it, it, it is. But it, it, it's. Uh, I think. I think the you know the, the certainly the network that I'm in, which is a national network of, of, of college providers, are certainly certainly up for that challenge. Um, you know, we we're being asked by government, and we and, and the sector is, I see is responding to the fact of looking looking at it's not just courses for courses' sake. Um, yeah, we what we I think the sector was uh, we used to be open to right criticism. I think that if young people enough people turn up at a door and wanted a particular course, we'd run it. Um, but there's a massive so what factor for that. So how you know, how's that helping the economy? Um, so you know so what our sector is currently being driven to do, and we are doing, is looking at you know what are the local priorities for your area? What are the local skills needs? Where are, where are the significant skills challenges, and how are colleges responding to that? Mm-hmm. We can only do that by working with the sectors themselves and the employers themselves and, um, in this case, manufacturers and, um, and people with the technology. I think industry's seen the, seen the opportunity, though, because sustainability is the right thing to do. We know, we know where we're going. We've, we've seen the plan. We've seen the end goal. Carbon net zero by 2050, 2045, 2030 in different, in different countries. But it's, it's looking at that as a challenge, but in that challenge is the opportunity. And it's the opportunity I, I, for industry. And I couldn't agree more, but then... So when, when the legislation was brought in that, um, you know, you, you couldn't use a gas boiler on a new build house after 2025. New build house, when it's built, now needs to use cleaner, greener technology and not have a gas boiler in there. And the first thing that Boris Johnson would say just after that, that announcement was made is, don't worry, we're not asking you all across the country to get rid of your <laughs> gas boilers. And I was like, well, that's what we should be getting to, really. That scale of change, government just couldn't get their head around, and they were absolutely petrified that most of the population living in existing buildings would be forced to change their gas boiler for for a cleaner, greener form of technology. And mm. and even though we all know that's the right thing to do, and we, I absolutely believe that every existing building should not have a gas boiler or an oil fired boiler. It should be clean, green technology. That's just too big a jump for the government to get their head around at the minute. And this and they're also scared that it's gonna, I hate to say it, put off, you know, potential votes because people are gonna go, hang on, you've forced me to do this in my house. It's cost me X thousands of pounds. I can't really afford that at the moment with the cost of living crisis. And so this is the kind of chicken and egg stuff you're talking about. You it know? is, but and it's all linked, is that you know, to, to, to be completely honest, if we'd have said, right, we're gonna change, put a heat pump in everybody's home in the UK, the industry wasn't ready for that because a, we can only manufacture so much, and every manufacturer, including Mitsubishi, is investing heavily in manufacturing facilities. We've got four in Scotland and many in Japan and, and, and one and two and three in Turkey. So we've got, we're investing heavily in manufacturing. 
that's one side of it. But the engineers, the, the skill set, you know, that, that was such a big challenge to get, to get, you know, that, that engineering skills uh, resource up to looking at low carbon uh, technologies. So I think when you look at the strategy of new build first, well, you know, that's the low hanging fruit for, for the carbon economy, because that's, that's where we can affect the change for this proportion of housing. Retrofit has always been going on. You know, I would say before this change in building regulations, 30% of maybe even higher of heat pumps were applied to retrofit in retrofit houses. And of course you've got social housing. So social housing has its own drivers with regard to fuel poverty and future proofing housing. So it's been quite balanced. We've had new builds, social and retro, and obviously then you have self-build where people are building their own houses. But I think, you know, we're, we've now certainly been on the sustainable journey myself for 18 years. We've been, felt like I've been pushing a P um, with my nose up Snowden, <laughs> convincing the world we should do things differently. And now it feels like we've just gone over the top and the he's starting to, to roll and maybe- Yeah, that's, but I think that's what's exciting about it all is that, and it's been mentioned already, that we all know it's the right thing to do and everybody wants to be sustainable in all forms of building. And it comes full circle back to houses being very comfortable places to live. It's about people at the end of the day living in a very comfortable home that's efficient and it's not wasting heat. And they've got a, a, a very good level of comfort that's not literally costing them the earth and putting pressure on their finances. And we, we all know that. We all know that wasting energy and wasting heat is a waste. It's, it's daft for us to do that. Mm-hmm. But when we've got a lot of old housing stock, and we know from all the statistics that have been put out there that you know, 80% of all existing buildings we have on planet Earth are still going to be used in 2050. 80%. And, and if we're going to be a net zero carbon planet, not just country, you know, we need to be thinking about retrofit of all forms of building types, not just houses and offices and, you know, shops, everything, you know, factories, warehouses, commercial buildings, the lot. 80% of all buildings that we'll be using in 2050 exist today. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that's a huge retrofit challenge. And, mm. We keep talking about transition, but I think it's a really important word. We we are right in the thick of a major transition between, you know, a burning economy to try and be in a cleaner, greener economy. And that's not just us, it's across the entire planet. And and everybody wants to get there, and some people won't get there fast enough. You just have to look at all the the decisions that were made at at COP26. Mm. You know, there was some fairly emotional speeches made at the end about, how disappointed some people were that some countries hadn't committed at the level that they think they should have done. Mm. But they're balancing their people with their economy and with the transient economy trying to be as green as possible. It's, well, you know, it's not easy. You've been doing it for 18 years. It's, it's not. <laughs> I come back to the opportunity. So, so you, people, industry recognises the opportunity that things are changing. There was an opportunity to, uh, to progress your company or progress your industry by by taking that opportunity and making that change. You get, you get that early adopter that turns into maybe 50, 60% of the market moves that way. And we've talked about this where 50% of companies will sit and wait and 50% of companies will move. But we'll probably get to the stage, I'm pretty, pretty sure we're, we're definitely going to get to the stage where if you want to provide technology for a development and you're not able to demonstrate your embodied carbon or your own carbon journey or your own efficiency, or your own net zero strategy, you're not going to be allowed to tender for that project. And it will become where you, and I fully see this on a global scale as well, is that, yes, you're going to get countries say, 
uh, we're, we're not ready to move yet. But if you want to trade with us, we're going to need you to operate a little bit more like this. Otherwise, yeah. we're not going to well, trade. I can agree more. And I, I also think the more we not just educate young people, but educate entire populations about the benefits of being green, um, consumers will change their buying habits. And yeah. we've seen that with electric cars. You know, mm-hmm. people are making decisions to to buy greener, cleaner cars because they feel it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it might cost them a few more pennies. And we also know that when you innovate in something, it costs a lot more money up front. We've talked about this before, Russ, where, you know, I remember my dad buying a kind of Betamax video player back in the day and it you know, cost nearly as much as the house. Where, you know, now, well, then you could get a DVD player for 20 quid from somewhere. It was very, very cheap. And so you know, the more the innovation develops, the more that technology and that product becomes more affordable, the more that people want it and their buying habits change, their demands change then the education system changes because there's more demand. I mean, it's classic supply-demand stuff, really, when you think about it. It, it really it, is. It is, and, and you're right. To, to your carbon literacy, to me, is a, is a huge thing. You talk about letting people know. that it, it's, um, The more carbon literate, literate we can make the population, the more it will start to drive. Mm. Um, you know, it, it, it's no mistake that I'm the kind of carbon leader at the college after attending some courses on carbon literacy, mm. um, you know, doing my carbon footprint. That was horrific. Mm. Um, we need to, you know, we need to embed that part, part of what I talked about, about decarbonizing our, our curriculum is as much as looking at what we do and how we decarbonize the content, but also how do we communicate that to our wider community, our local community? How do we make as many people as we can carbon literate? Um, and it's all of these things added together, which will make the difference. I think yeah. we'll make, we'll make the difference. And, and it's, when you talk about being carbon literate, I find that really interesting, actually, because it's a bit like having smart metering on your heating system at home. You know, so many people still don't have them. And my mum's got one. And it's amazing, actually, that when you go in and, and look at it, and she knows exactly what she's spending per day. My God, that's made her change the way she operates the thermostat and the controls on her heating system at home because she has become not just carbon literate, but also kind of more cost literate about how she's using something. And so it's been driven by, I mean, there's no doubt about it. My mum wants to be greener. Of course she does. But she also wants to use less energy and save money. You know, there's there's a money factor to this as well. And so when she could see it was costing her you know, six, seven, eight pounds a day, you know, for having her heating system at a certain level. But if she just tweaked it a little bit, it was going down to four and a half quid a day. She's like, great, I'm saving a few quid. And I think with the cost of living crisis and certainly with the the energy crisis we're happening, I mean, it is quite a scary time for people out there at the minute. I mean, the thought of having your energy bills go from 1,800 quid a year, two grand a year to being three and a half or 3,800 and then possibly even 6,000. I mean, that is frightening. Mm. You know, when you think that the, the average state pension is just over, I think it's nine, nine and a half thousand quid or something like that. And six of that could go on your energy bills. That is a frightening time. Mm. So I think it's the, that lovely phrase, I think about being carbon literate. I love that. It's just, it's fantastic about not just educating young people, but education, educating the nation, if you like, about the differences they can make increasing their levels of comfort in their home, which I think is really, really important. It's, it's still bonkers how drafty a lot of our houses are. You know, it's mad when I go into certain houses, I'm like, how can I still feel a draft mm-hmm. in a house that was built, even if it was built in 1980? You know, 
1980, the housing should have still been pretty decent, mm. you know, with decent insulation standards. And not great, by the way, but, you know, certainly better than it was in the 60s. And I go in and you think, you know, some substandard double glazing's been fitted, which has been cheap and nasty and hardly even worth changing from the single glazing because the seals weren't good enough. And you think, that's just a bad investment. That's a bad decision. You know, it's sometimes it's like... um organizations being seen to do the right thing rather than actually doing the right thing. You know, they've put in a cheap, low-cost product to be seen to do the right thing, to be more environmentally friendly in a building, and it's not. Mm-hmm. That comes back to design. That comes back to what me and you have talked about a lot, Russ, about being honest. Mm-hmm. You know, I think organizations being very, very honest about how green they can be or how green they can't be, mm-hmm. how green a product can be. You know, as you know, an eco dance system doesn't work for all building types. It mm-hmm. just, it just doesn't. You don't, you know, it's just not going to. That building has to change for the eco dance system to be able to support it. So, I think all of that comes full circle about honesty, educating everybody from top to bottom. Absolutely. You know, from grandparents yeah. all the way down to young kids, and and making them more carbon literate. I'm going to steal that phrase by, from you, by the way. Well, I love that. <laughs> well, that carbon literacy it sounds fantastic, doesn't it? It means like you're kind of reading it. You're Talking about it, you're. It really is. It's um, having gone on, you know, that that, that um, the program that I looked at. It was you know, it, there was so much. I thought I knew um, about climate change and the causes of climate change and and all of the all the things that surround it. Um, I, I finished it, you know, because a couple of days, it's only a couple of days. I finished that knowing there was so much I didn't know and so much I misunderstood. And that's you being educated and or re-educated. That's, that's, that, that's me being... And you're a teacher. <laughs> and, and, and I'm the carbon reduction lead for the college. So. <laughs> but that's brilliant, isn't it? I mean, that's a great example of you going, hang on, I think I know. And then you've realised that you didn't really know. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, you must have come out a different person after Absolutely. a two-day course. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not prepared to go and stick my hands to the road and stuff like that and stop people from driving. But but absolutely, it's, it's fundamentally changed the way I think, fundamentally changed some of the things that I do. Um, um, and, um, you know, it, I'm I'm driven now to make sure that the college does meet its targets across all of all of the areas that we operate, uh, which is not, an un, not a small task, given that we're two campuses, 14, 15 buildings. Um, across the whole operation, but um, I think yeah, it's, it does, it's, it it's obviously it's giving you that bigger purpose behind what you're doing. You're obviously very passionate about education, but then along comes I, the. Carbon. I think the changing point was when that when I was told that my carbon footprint was equal to two savannah elephants annually. So there's something I it didn't even look like it was just a weight of. Um, but so then you then, then you get you're kind of driven to to do something about it. But you you understand where you are at that specific point in time, and then you can make the changes necessary, don't you? And I think that you're right that that carbon literacy is. First of all, it's understanding where we are right now as a company, as an industry, as a as as a planet, as a as a, as a country, as an individual, and then what that what those steps are yeah. going forward. Mitsubishi Electric's Ecodam air source heat pump switch from fossil fuels like oil, LPG, and storage heaters to clean, renewable home heating. Visit ecodam.co.uk for more information. Yeah, and I, I know I keep banging on about it, but I do think we're in a, a massive transitional phase. I think we, we, we all, you've mentioned it, Russ, we, we know what we need to be doing. Mm. Quite often we, we know how to do it. Mm. Actually, a lot of us do. Um, but it's about everybody 
going along through that process to make it work. Now that means education, it means balancing the economy, it means jobs, everything, supply chains, it affects so many parts of what we do. But that's, I think when, when the phrase is used about being a green economy, that's kind of massive in some ways. You know, it's a, that's a big thing to say. You know, we can all say, oh yeah, we want to be part of a green economy. But trying to balance ecology and the economy yeah. together at the same time when the systems we now have aren't designed to be super green, that's a tough period. And I think we're in that. I agree. And I, I think it, 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 there, there is a danger that you look at it and you think this is just, this is just too big. This, this is, we need to just put this in a too difficult box and go away from it. But I think you, I think the, you, you have to remain optimistic. And I think you're right, Russ. It, 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 you know, we've, we've got some great opportunities. We've got the technology there. We've got opportunities that are there. Um, and we need to kind of capitalize on that. Not with not st- stepping back and completely staying blind to the bigger picture, but doing concentrate on what we can do. Um, and over time, that will shift. Mm. Yeah. I think more, the more of us get that purpose behind us of that bigger purpose, the, the, the more weight you add to it, you know. And why why are you doing it? You know, it's certainly education is key. You know, I left my daughter this morning, eight years old. What are you doing today? I'm doing some podcasts and some YouTube, which she thinks is I'm on the telly. But uh, <laughs> you know, And it's about, you know, it's it's important for me to say to her, I'm doing my bit. Like, yeah. I'm going to make, make this difference myself. I, I think I can do this bit, you know, and that, and that's that bigger purpose behind yeah. it. Well, I will always say to, to, to people that join Mitsubishi Electric and they could be graduates, they could be, you know, quite experienced people. And, and I'll often say, I'll have to say, how are you going to engage with the, with the industry, with the public about our technology? And they'll always say, I'm going to tell them it's the right thing to do and you must do the right thing and you must change and you must do this. And I'll say, that is not our place to say that. Our place is, yes, to educate, but we educate on the benefits. But also we have to create commercial arguments about why this technology is good. This technology is good because it's moving energy from one place to the other. This technology is good because it's going to save running condition, running costs against this. This energy allows us to not only uh, to move that energy, but to use that energy elsewhere. Uh, and looking at, you know, even looking at a house builder, this technology will help you build houses for less because you're not bringing a gas pipeline into that that housing thingy. This technology is good because it reduced energy costs to a, a social housing tenant. So people see the opportunity in doing the right thing. Oh, absolutely, there's no doubt about it. And and you know, the, but it's it's been a battle for lots of different people yeah. and lots of forms of industries. You know, I mean, Jamie Oliver tried to tried to change school dinners back in the day. You know, and there was parents literally handing burgers through the fences to yeah. their kids at school saying, have yourself a burger because he's feeding you fancy stuff. You know, and I'm not saying it's like that for the house building industry, but, but it's, you know. Passing it's, a gas boiler through the... Uh, yeah, it's, that's a bit extreme. It's, and that's why I'm saying you can't really compare everything. But but that's an example, really, I think, of, of you know, education and systemic change. And, and okay, not saying it's the right thing to do, yeah. but actually proving to people that, it, that it's a benefit to them and their way of life mm-hmm. and, and hopefully making their life more comfortable and, and prolonging their life when it comes to things like your diet. I think the right thing to do is laced on top of that. This is the commercial argument why I think we should make this decision. This is the, the ethical piece of why that is right. You know, we, we've, we've come up with a really good, piece of engineering here and it's the right thing to do and it kind of locks in together Lance I want to talk to you about 
uh, uh, this opportunity thing for me about, because I see industry sees the opportunity, certain parts of the industry starts to change. And the installers uh, and the engineers that are coming in, are they seeing that as an opportunity when they come in? Are they telling you that this is an opportunity for me to grow my business or 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 give my business more longevity? Or what is it that's driving them, do you think, when they come in? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think one thing we, we find quite surprising is how many aircon guys are coming on to heating courses now and they're starting to flip their hand. Um, you know, I was always told an aircon person would understand this technology quite easily. Um, and, and, and it's not because air, I find that really interesting. So <laughs> when we talked um, a bit earlier, it was about kind of electricians over here and plumbers over there, but aircon's always been both. Doesn't it really? It's kind of connected. It's probably a bit more electrics, but there's a bit of a connection. There. I could I'd probably start the start of the journey when we when we when we we had this technology for a long, long time, and and an air conditioning unit is an an outdoor unit condensing unit and an indoor unit, and it's refrigerant pipes into the building. Yeah, and we could have had that same technology with the heat pump or the ecodan. So you could have had outdoor unit refrigerant pipes into the building exchange the heat from the refrigerant to water and then water to yep. into the house. The problem there was that that needs a, uh, another skill, a F-gas qualified engineer to yep. braise that pipe to, to put the gas into the system, that refrigerant into the system. Or we had an alternative, kind of VHS beta max, if you're going back to your yep. previous point, which we call monoblock. So all the refrigerant is factory sealed in the outdoor unit and it's water in from the house. Therefore, we didn't need that, that brazing of pipe work. We didn't need that, 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 that uh, F-gas qualified engineer. And therefore, what that meant was that every plumber in the UK could now install this technology. And we didn't have to go for the minority of, of, the, of the air conditioning installers to move over from air conditioning to, 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 to domestic heating. So uh, That's a great example of a manufacturer absolutely innovating when it comes to R&D and saying, let's design that out and design that out and we don't need that and let's make it more efficient. Fundamentally, we need to make a technology that every installer can install and the, the homeowner, tenant, gets the best out of it. We also may have to make that so that that technology can be used ongoing by that homeowner and they get the best out of it. So the controls, the, everything else needs to go in there. But Yeah, and I think that's it's really interesting coming back to people as well. So when you're talking about in this instance, homeowners, let's say. Um, my mum doesn't really want to know about the technology <laughs> in an air source heat pump, right? So there's, there's certain homeowners that I speak to about their air source heat pump and they get really excited about the technology. And quite often they're engineers or they've got some sort of construction knowledge or they're in sort of some sort of product design or they're designers. You know what I mean? They're kind of slightly geeky like me and they really want to know how the thing works. My mum doesn't care at all. She just wants it to be a really good, clever system that's really reliable, that hopefully saves the planet as well as saves on her energy bills and makes her more comfortable than the technology she had before mm. at no more cost. But, and that's kind of it. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's, that's the challenge, I think, of trying to educate people about the benefits without getting too geeky and technological about it. But, but this is where people are coming back saying, you know, I'm not an aircon engineer. I'm not a heating engineer. I'm a renewables technician. You know, lots of things are being banded around now and people are changing their stance on how they're going to target the market. And they see the opportunity you said there about growing your business. Um, a lot of people do see the opportunity in the industry. And, you know, you look on the MCS website, I looked this morning, uh, there's 553 companies on the MCS. If I was to look for an installer, that's how many companies are showing up on the list to install an air source heat pump across the whole of the UK. That's a massive opportunity. Uh, how many, uh, you said earlier on, how many, how many engineers within those companies are trained, you know, probably a couple of thousand, but 
for me to be able to, as a customer, go out and find someone who's a good installer that can come and install my product. Um, that's absolutely what Mitsubishi Electric can do to help support these, uh, you know, our partners in helping them grow their business and giving them up those opportunities and making sure that the training for them is not just something that suits us, but something that's, that's, that's sufficient for them to be able to take that knowledge into the homeowner's property and, and yeah. be able to install a good system because that's, you know, I listened to quite a bit today about talking about the product and it is a good product. You know, the Ikidan is a great product if installed correctly, if it's configured correctly, if it's put into the correct type of dwelling. Um, well, that's why the upskilling is so important, mm. isn't it? I mean, if people are making a transition from an air conditioning background or a plumbing or electrician's background, they need to be upskilled at that level to really understand that system to get it right. Yeah. So get, get back onto the, the upskilling. And what, what do you think were the biggest challenges to an education provider of helping the government, the UK, globally, close that skills gap? What, what's your biggest challenge? So I, I think um, <clears throat> enabling, um, at the beginning, I said it's, it, for young people, it's about jobs. Um, um, but it's enabling uh, businesses to um, be able to see the opportunities that are out there um, colleges can do that from an educational perspective. It's very difficult to get the you know, get, get government to change policy in terms of the wider things that George was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, the we will do we will do that, and we'll have those conversations directly into government with in terms of skills and in terms of you know where we where we believe future skills need to be. Um, but it's only one part of a, a much bigger cog, if you like, and a much bigger wheel. There's so much more that needs to happen around that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, it, I suppose, the other the other challenge for, for colleges, as I say, to, to ensure that we've got currency mm-hmm. um, for, for young people and also it, it attracts the funding for colleges, we normally need to get that to a qualification. Mm-hmm. Now, the, 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 the awarding organisations are quite a long way off at the moment of changing their curriculum. And that, as George will know, that's, that's not an easy, quick solution. Maybe you should start upskilling politicians, man. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a challenge. <laughs> but, I, but I think that's, you know, we always talk about everything being interconnected and it, and it really all is, whether it's educating someone young, middle-aged, old, you know, whether it's industry leading and changing and innovating with R&D, which is what Mitsubishi Electric and Ecodan are doing, you know, whether it's government policy, they're all massively connected, you know. And one of the problems with with politics, as you know, Russ, and from all of my blogs when I have a whinge every month, is when it comes to politics, it can be quite transient. Now, yes, there are some long-term targets that have been set when it comes to moving to a greener, low carbon economy. But, you know, just, just recently with the cost of living crisis, there's been certain politicians out there saying, let's get back to burning coal. Mm. Uh, you know, mm. let's, let's do that because that, that's what the country needs right yeah. now. And that's a little bit like, you know, some of the house builders saying, well, I just need more bricklayers and I need more plasterers mm. or I need more gas engineers, you know, and, and we, we might know as innovators or educators that there's a different way of doing it, but it's a fine balance about how you manage that through a process of transition. I think that's the toughest thing that we're dealing with. Look, we're in a world now where influencers are, are, are pretty big. You only have to go on any social media platform to find someone that will tell you what about renewable technology. You know, I saw one last night, TikTok was telling you to go and buy thermostat rings for your, your radiators. So you can turn them off in the rooms you don't use heat. I mean, I just thought that was a kind of common sense thing, really. If you don't use that room, don't, don't hear um, and, and unfortunately, there are people out in the industry, or I'm not in, in our industry as such, but who are trying to influence the decisions that people would make within 
renewable technology. So whether or not it's, you know, S or C pumps don't work, you know, this is not the right thing to do. Let's go and burn coal because that's, like you say, that's the thing we need now. That's the best thing to go and do because it's the easy thing to do. Let's be honest, that's, that's pretty much what it is. Um, I think we just always need to be conscious. And, and that's probably one of the biggest challenges that we face as a training um, uh, body or train, tra- tra- as part of the training agenda is, you know, to combat sometimes those negative things that people are being told. You know, we get it all the time. People come to the training and they get told, oh, we're, we're told that that doesn't do that and that doesn't work and, and whatnot. And it's like, well, that's, that's where have you heard that? You know, oh, I read it online. Well, <laughs> where, where did you read that? Um, it's just about making sure that they, they use the information. And I'm sure you see it from a college perspective as well, um, is that they're using the information that they're given, which is actually validated and, yeah. and, and, and Well, that's, accurate. yeah, absolutely. And that's... Um, <clears throat> I suppose we're being educated in many different forms or not educated in many different forms, depending on your point of view. Education is education is news and there's news, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. But I mean, it's even when you go back to things that I used to be involved in right back in the day, just about people bleeding their radiators, you know, and people are like, what do you mean bleed my radiators? And you're like, well, there's some air in there and you need to bleed it and get it out because if you feel your radiator there, it's going to be cold and here it's going to be hot. And that was like a whole educational program just about people, Mm. you know, maintaining their existence system. However, it was heated, you know, so I mean, we keep saying upskilling, but it is education, education, education. I mean, it really is. It is, and coming back to what Russell said, to answer it in a better way, probably, I suppose, thinking about it, the, the, the probably the biggest immediate challenge that we've got as colleges is um, you know, by, by our inherent nature, um, particularly in, in our kind of engineering areas, is it we're full of um, highly skilled people, um, but they've been out of industry. Some of them have been out of industry for a long time. Mm. Um, and you know, I, I've got an aging workforce. I know the industry's got an aging workforce. Um, so I suppose the, the biggest challenge is for us is to make sure that the, the skills of our educators and our lecturers and our teachers are uh, current and we continue to do that and get it current, but we need to recruit into the sector as well. And, and, and the, the challenge is that it, colleges find it very difficult to compete with it. I don't know how much, you know, the engineers that come to see you earn, but it's significantly more than what we can probably pay them. Um, and we have that across many of the areas, but it's, uh, um, it's again, it's, a, it's that's one, and part of it is, you know, we're trying to grow our own. We're trying to take on apprentices ourselves, put them into industry to, in the hope that we can get, we can get some back in to teach. But I suppose it, 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 the biggest challenge at the moment, I think, is making sure that we've got current skills within our workforce to be able to train young people of the future. Um, and I suppose that's where I think we would value even stronger tie-ups with people like yourself to be able to do that. Because we recognise with, without links with people like Mitsubishi, we just we just can't do that. I'll come, I'll come back to that again in a sec, but I think for what I'm taking <laughs> in there is everything needs to move at the same pace, doesn't it? There can't be a lag where industry moves forward and education falls behind, where, you know, uh, let's just say we've, we, we've, arra- we've agreed a certain target, industries recognise that target, seen the opportunity, started to make the changes, but then education is, is that lag. And that probably draws us on to that point of how could a company like Mitsubishi Electric and, and a college work better together to make sure there isn't that lag? Uh, yeah, I think I think close working partnership, ongoing dialogue. Um, you know, it, it, if we can, for me, it's all about if I can get my engineers understanding your technology, understanding your products, then we can get them into a centre. We can get them training those on uh, training young people at new entrants on on that activity. But just touching on what you said there, you know, it's all well and good finding people with the recognised backgrounds. I've been an engineer for X amount of years. I've installed heat systems, this and the other. But then you've got that flip side of being able to then teach people how to do that. 
and and the teaching skill is is not always there. So we we call it dual professionals. We we yeah, yeah. we we we're full of we're organisation that are full of dual professionals and. Um, I just wish the government would recognise that, that we've got engineers that are actually qualified as teachers. It's another profession. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you There's know. There's a lot of skills. I'm, I'm blessed to have a couple of fantastic trainers that I've had for some time now who have worked with us for a long period of time with them at Special Electric. And, you know, we had to multi-skill them. You know, they were they were engineers and they had done a series of roles within the business, but never built training, to deliver training, you know, delivering virtual learning, doing hands-on. Yeah storyboarding a program you know all those types of things and um i'm, I'm very blessed to have a, a great team around me that can do that and um but it's taken time to to touch and it on. is it's it's it's, it's probably two unique tier skills that, you, that you're after because you want you want really good in whatever field you're looking at you want really you want the best engineers to come into education um but those engineers need to have kind of the the willing and wanting to impart their knowledge and and to do it in an inspiring way yeah particularly when you're working with young people so it's been it's been great to hear yeah, there's a lot of thought going into this, and I think, I think we can we can definitely see ways where we can work together uh, on that education piece. I think Lance brought up some great stuff earlier on about education moving away from that typical classroom of PowerPoint or you know projector style education into blended education platforms, allowing us to reach more people with better content, more readily accessible content is certainly the way. One of the ways that we can bridge that skills gap, industry working better with education so that there isn't that lag between as industry moves forward, that, that, that we certainly need education to come with us to provide our next apprentices and our graduates. And, you know, we're committed to taking on 10 graduates a year and with so many opportunities for apprentice engineers to come through as well. So, you know. I don't think it's any coincidence, though, that we're using the same words in this podcast that we've used on other podcasts where we've said it's about honesty, education, and collaboration. Mm -hmm. So it's like honest information, honest education, very good education that really works, and then collaboration between educational institutions and industry, mm -hmm. and also collaboration with government, and then collaboration with the public and the people who have to live in, in well-designed, well-heated houses. So it's it's... They're the same words that are coming through for me. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about upskilling or innovation or better homes, whatever it might be, those words still apply. And that's why I always bring that commercial argument into it, because that is the honest argument, is that just telling someone about what the right thing to do isn't enough. It's almost you know a religious argument, that, but actually providing commercial arguments with data and facts um, that's, 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 that's supported shows that it's the right thing to do. You know, we, we have to create really strong arguments there. So there you have it. Heat pumps, upskill to Ikadan. A huge thanks to my guests, George, Will and Lance for coming on the show. Thank you for listening. And please share, subscribe, rate and review the Ikadan Serious About Sustainability podcast. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>